0: Hello, everyone. My name is Sarah Pink. I'm a new professor at RMIT. I've just started to work here, I'm working across the Design Research Institute and the Digital Ethnography Research Centre and the School of Media and Communication, um, which is partly the reason why I'm introducing this um, event. Um, the event's co sponsored by the Digital Ethnography Research Centre. The Design Research Institute and the ARC Centre of Excellence for Creative Industries and Innovation. I did have to read all that because I'm new here. Um, and we'd also like to acknowledge the traditional landowners, the Wurundjeri people, and Those are the kind of formal um, parts of the introduction that I wanted to give. But I also wanted to say that having arrived here as somebody new to RMIT, I just arrived here at the beginning of August, this is an incredibly exciting event for me. Um, I'm part of the Digital Ethnography Research Centre and I'm part of the Design Research Institute. And this is the first co-sponsored and co-organised event that these two parts of RMIT have run together. And I think that's also very kind of significant significant and important for thinking about how research which is connecting ethnography design and the digital is really coming together here in really really exciting and new ways and i think that starting this series of this having a talk here kind of starting my time here as well with this talk with by genevieve bell is also very kind of important and inspiring in terms of thinking about how we're going to go forward and, and go ahead so now i want to introduce you to Larissa Horth who's going to give you an introduction to Genevieve and Genevieve's talk.
1: Thank you, Sarah. Um, Thanks, everyone, for coming here on such a beautiful Melbourne sunny day. (laughs) Um, it gives me great pleasure to introduce the brilliant Genevieve Bell because Genevieve's many things and I'll read the kind of, you know, these are the things that you can find on the web, you know, like Intel, Labs Director of the Interaction and Experience Research, Fast Companies Inaugural, 100 Most Creative People in Business, the 15th Thinker in Residence in South Australia and Always On's Top 25 Women in Technology to Watch but she's also been named Intel's secret weapon. In 2011, she and Paul Dorish released the highly compelling Divining the Digital Future, Mess and Mythology in Ubiquitous Computing with MIT Press. She's one of the few people who can traverse industry and academia successfully. Behind her dazzling success is an Australian born, and you'll know when you hear her accent that she's Australian born, (laughs) Stanford trained anthropologist who's taught industry the importance in understanding the social, cultural and emotional dimensions of technologies. She's uncovered the mysteries of numerous material cultures from mobile phones to backyard sheds. She does archaeological digs of things we find in cars. She's probably the most witty person you'll ever meet. She's not afraid to express her opinion, and every time I see her present, she takes me for a fascinating, inspiring journey jam-packed with insights. I still remember the first time I met her at a conference at Surrey University called Mobile Life in 2004. She was, as always, ahead of her field. Her probes into mobile communication were awe-inspiring at the time the field was in need of feminist critiques of gender inequalities and tacit power relations moreover there was a need for someone to highlight how gender has shaped is shaped differently in various cultural contexts a feature amplified by technology genevieve was that person it's my absolute honor to introduce genevieve in today's talk entitled ducks dolls and divine Robots designing our futures with computing. Genevieve will enlighten us on our emotional relationship with technology. If we can put our hands together for the fantastic Genevieve.
2: Wow, that was an unexpectedly sweet introduction. Thank you. Um, it's my pleasure to be back in Melbourne, one of the places I claim to be from possibly not today. Um, maybe tomorrow when the football is on, well we be missing it because I'll be in Sydney, the other place I like to say I'm from, where I assume the weather will be better. Um, it's my incredible pleasure to be here and it's a real privilege to be kicking off a series of conversations between two places I like to think of as being home for me too. Between thinking about conversations about ethnography and anthropology and conversations about design and technology. What I wanted to do today, however, was give a slightly different talk than I usually do. I don't want to talk about digital ethnography, I don't really want to talk about what it means to be an anthropologist in the tech field. What I want to do is sort of take you where my current thinking is going about our relationships through with, and in some ways against, technology. And I want to do it by drawing on, well, effectively, you'll be happy to know, Larissa, 300 years of contemporary history, sort of post-enlightenment to now, to talk about <laughs> ducks and robots and you know all other things. In that incredibly gracious introduction, the one thing Larissa forgot to say is that not only am I an anthropologist, I'm also the child of an anthropologist. So, in some ways, I come by my training dishonestly. Um, I was raised in anthropology departments in this country. In fact, I was kicked out of my first anthropology class at four and a half here at Monash University um, in Melbourne when it turned out I could work out what was matrilateral cross cousin marriage. Uh, For those of you who studied anthropology, you'll know that's kind of an arcane form of social organisation, and it turns out if you're four and a half, you shouldn't be able to work it out because it makes the 25-year-olds unhappy. Uh, I was then consigned to the corridor and spent the rest of my mother's education sitting in the corridor with my Vita wheat biscuits and my colouring books, resisting the temptation to say that I knew the answer to marriage patterns. That meant I grew up in a series of Aboriginal communities across Central and Northern Australia. I spent most of my childhood living in places between Alice Springs and basically Tennant Creek a little bit of time knocking around slightly east and west of Darwin, uh, places again that you might not have heard of uh, and possibly shouldn't. Uh, It was an unexpected and complicated childhood and it propelled me into anthropology but also out of Australia. Um, I went to the United States for both my undergraduate and graduate degrees, which was kind of unusual in that time period. I went to Stanford for my PhD, as Larissa said, and I fully anticipated that I was going to be an academic anthropologist. I did Native American studies, I was doing something fairly obscure, I studied a Native American boarding school, think the Cootamundra girls home, but for indigenous people, you know, 10,000 students over a 40-year period, not exactly the training that lands you in industry. And I hadn't planned to be in industry, except that I was living in Silicon Valley in the middle of the dot-com boom, and I found myself as a good Australian woman in a bar in Palo Alto in March of 1998, talking to some bloke. Um, He asked me what I did. I told him, he said, okay, you're an anthropologist, what's that? I'd had at least one beer, so I told him more of what that meant. And then told him that he'd always needed one. And then thought to possibly ask what it was that he did. Um, He told me he ran a startup. He was interested in digital paper. I had a lot of opinions about actual paper. He thought that was interesting. I thought he wasn't. That was the end of the conversation. (laughs) I went home, I went back to doing the things you do in faculty, teaching, grading exams, and my phone rang the next morning, and I pick it up, and it's the man from the bar who says, hi, it's Bob. And I'm like, who? He's like, we met Pearls last night. I'm like, how'd you get my number? Because this is 1998, before LinkedIn, Facebook, the internet, before a box you could have typed in the words redheaded Australian anthropologist, and gotten my name. And in fact, he'd called every anthropology department in the Bay Area, asking for said redheaded Australian anthropologist. (laughs) Happily, he did it alphabetically, so I know he had to suffer for this because Stanford came last. Unexpectedly, however, the secretary of the anthropology department at Stanford thought that would be perfectly fine to say, oh, you mean Genevieve, would you like her home number? (laughs) So I'm like, Bob, what do you want? He's like, well, you seem interesting. I'm like, and you're not. He's like, no, 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 not like that. And then he said, what are, I suspect for some of you in this room, still the magic words. He's like, can I buy you lunch? And I'm like, I'm a starving graduate student. Yes, you can buy me lunch. You could buy me dinner also. That would be fine. He bought me lunch. He introduced me to a bunch of people in Silicon Valley. They, in turn, introduced me to other people in Silicon Valley. Uh, They all thought I was interesting. This turns out to have been the secret in 1998 in Silicon Valley. If you had a pulse, you were interesting. If you had opinions, you were very interesting. Um, It turned out I was very interesting. Um, I got shipped off to Intel in this process. I ended up giving a job talk at Intel. I will confess, it will make... Some of you happy to know I gave a very classic job talk. I brought a 30-page paper, and I read it out loud to engineers about indigeneity and the relationship between federal Indian policy in the 1900s (laughs) and how that was constituting new forms of Indian citizenship that were very important in the 21st century. There were a lot of engineers who just went for an hour. And at the end, they all went some more, and there were no questions, which I knew wasn't good. And then for the remaining six hours that I was there, it was remarkably in some ways like an academic job interview process. They stuck me in a room and people kept appearing and asking me questions. Except unbeknownst to me, the place I was interviewing had just discovered behavioral interviewing as a technique. They were very interested to make sure that they were hiring people who would fit into the culture in Intel. The culture on Intel in those days was fairly abrasive, argumentative, they like to fight. They have something they call constructive confrontation, which really just means they yell at each other a lot. and it's considered to be a fairly stressful work environment. So they understood behavioral interviewing would help them weed out the people who wouldn't be successful. Unfortunately, they understood behavioral interviewing to mean you should subject the candidate to the behavior you were interested in seeing their response to, not ask them how they responded when subjected to it, which is a critical but subtle difference. And so for the first hour, people asked me questions and then yelled at me. That's an incredibly stupid answer. Why would you think that? What's wrong with you? Kind of unexpected in a job interview, right? You usually use people going, that's very interesting. And they're like, you're an idiot. Like, okay. And I'm a good Australian. And after an hour of that, I got really bolshy and stepped right back into them. And my next line became, really? You think that's a stupid answer? Let me tell you about the question. That's the most stupid question I've ever been asked. I think I might actually have said to one of them in a very unpolitically correct way, Are you retarded? That is an incredibly stupid question. That goes on for six hours, right? And at the end, I can't leave the building fast enough and unfortunately for me, they were in love and offered me a job (laughs) immediately and I turned them down. For six months, they seduced me and wooed me and attempted to convince me that I should leave my tenure track job at Stanford and join them. For six months, I kept going, have you become any nicer? Do you know what I'll be doing? The answer to which was usually no and no. Um, And after six months of that, I realized that in fact there was something extraordinary about what they were offering me. Because they had no idea what I would do. They had no idea what the job would be. And they had no idea what it was that anthropology actually was. They just thought, A, it was interesting. And B, they knew that as a company, the people who were starting to use and consume their technology looked completely different from the people inside the building making the technology. And so they started to realize that that gap they were going to need to address. There might be opportunity in it. And truthfully, they'd hide some psychologists. And it hadn't gone so well for them. So now they were looking for ethnographers and I was the first one out of the gate and into the door. When I finally realized that the invitation to do this was something that I'd be crazy to say no to, I called Intel back against the advice of everyone in my life. My supervisor said he'd never speak to me again if I took the job. I was his best student in 30 years and as far as he was concerned, this would be a waste. To the man's credit, he has kept his word and has not spoken to me in 14 (laughs) years. I would like to now say that's his waste, but. It's fairly hard to communicate with him. Everyone else said, why would you do that? And I just remember thinking in a very, I think again, Australian moment of going, here's a complete opportunity to reinvent yourself. What's the possible downside? If I hate it, I'll quit. So I call Intel, I say, when can I start? They say, you know, come along. I join Intel. I go through my first day, which is an orientation process where they explain to you you shouldn't eat anything off the factory floor. Who knew? Um, That everything in the building was dangerous and that stairwells will kill you like, okay, so fully now briefed with how dangerous my workplace is, I sat down with my new boss, and she said, great, now that you're here, we've decided we need your help with two things. I'm like, excellent, what are those two things? I mean, kind of slightly annoyed, because it had gone from being, we don't know what you'll do to two things, but I'm like, okay, I can you know roll with that. What are those two things, I said, and she said, well, number one, we need your help with women. And I've been in the university system for a while, so I knew there was a good question you should ask here, and I said, which women? Because there are a lot of women. And she said, all women. (laughs) I'm like, all 3.2 billion women? She said, yes. I said, what exactly do you want me to do with 3.2 billion women? She said, well, it'd be really good if you could explain to us what they want. And so in my notebook, I write down women all and underline it several times and try to imagine what is the project you would do to explain women all to a company that as far as I understood it at that point made microprocessors. So it was a very big gap, right? But you know, I'm a researcher, I like those kind of puzzles, that seemed excellent. And then I realized that my new boss had said she needed my help with a second thing. And if the first thing is women all, you have to wonder what the second thing might be. And I'm sure in my heart of hearts, I hoped it would be men. Because that would round out the equation. But no, my new boss said the other thing she needed my help with was something that she said was R-O-W. And so I wrote that down in my notebook and realized I didn't know what that was either. And so, you know, while on my way to being world's worst employee, day two, I'm like, okay, what's R-O-W? She says, that's rest of world.
3: <laughs>
2: and so I take a very deep breath because I realize I'm probably from rest of world at this point. And I say, where's world in this <laughs> sentence, just for clarification? And she says, that's America. I'm like, okay.
3: <laughs>
2: <laughs> so to be clear, you'd like my help with women and everyone else. And she says, yes. And at that point I remember thinking this job will kill me in six months or it will be the best thing I have ever done. Because if the brief is help us understand women and everyone else, that is an extraordinary opportunity as a researcher to do something really kind of special. And if you can't work out how to do something really kind of special with that, it'd be sort of sad and pathetic. So I've now been there for 14 years. These days, as Larissa said, I run an R&D lab. I have about 100 people who work for me. Range of different skills. About 30% of them are research social scientists, about 30% are human factors engineers and interaction designers. The rest are actually hardware and software engineers who tremble in fear that they work for an anthropologist. Um, We're helping them work through that. One day I hope they'll be happier about it. My brief from the company is reinvent the way we all experience computing. That's it. So it's not a bad brief if you have to have one. And I figure that my job continues to be in some ways what the job of most anthropologists has always been, which is to bring voices into the conversation who wouldn't find their way into that conversation naturally. To bring the voices of people into the room whose lives the technology will affect and make sure that they're represented in the conversation. And usually I think we're making progress. We've converted the company from being a place that talks about ROW. Haven't said that in a long time, which is good. But occasionally I realize I'm not making as much progress as I want, and I was struck by this recently when some of the engineers came to me and said, okay, we understood we need to talk about people and we've found some. And they showed me these. And I said, who are these people? And they said, well, these are the people we hope will be our next users. And I'm like, "Um, okay, can I ask you some questions about these people? They're like, yes, we're very excited to tell you about them. I'm like, excellent. Um, so sociologically speaking, not even anthropologically sociologically speaking where do you think you're going to find three generations of white people all in the same room all happily enjoying the same television content when it isn't the Olympics or Canada and they were like mmm what do you mean I'm like this is really you know not helpful right there's a whole lot of other things wrong with this this is the image you are using for your users right there are small children and white furniture Just kind of a no-no, practically speaking. There is no coffee table. There is no clutter. George Bush Sr. is in this, and I don't know why. I don't know what he's doing there. And frankly, even if you take all of that away, the other thing that is really troubling in this picture is that there is only one remote control. And as the engineers pointed out to me once we'd gone through this whole critique, you're right, Genevieve, there's only one remote control, and she has it. (laughs) And I looked at this image and I looked at the engineers I work with and I said, listen, you know, I understand why this is what you want to wish your users are. I understand why this is a really seductive image, right? There's something incredibly compelling in imagining that the people that you want to design for are effectively sitting in an empty room waiting to be further delighted. There's no history, no legacy, no equipment, no mess you need to contend with, no complications, just pre-manufactured happiness in a kind of slightly beige way. And I said to the you know, engineers we were partnering with, this is not going to help you. If you think these are your users, you're going to make the wrong decisions from a technological perspective when you design things. And so I pulled my, en- you know, my team aside and said, we're going to need to start coming up with some other visual language to help them pass this. And the first photo we came back with was one from a field site we'd just been visiting in Asia. And we said, if you actually wanna talk about the future, let's get real about where it's gonna be for Intel. And we said, you know, here is for us the quintessential image of what you know, our future user looks like. It's some bloke sitting on a fake leather sofa in a you know, very small apartment in Hong Kong. And there is a television and a DVD player and a VCD player and a Blu-ray player and a fax and photocopy machine and an air conditioner and an automatic foot massage machine and a fan all connected to the same electrical outlet. (laughs) There are seven remote controls on the table and two more in the drawer. There is enough content this bloke doesn't need to leave this room arguably ever again and there's washing just in case he wants to do the ironing because he's bored. And we said to our colleagues, if we want to talk about people, we actually have to talk about what the reality of it really is. What some of us in the academy would talk about is the material culture of it, right? People don't live in a blank slate. They don't live in an empty place. They live in a place that's already full of things, full of things, full of patterns, full of lives that are already in process. And if as a technology company we wanted to make something compelling, it had to be sufficiently compelling that it was going to be worth either working out how to stick another extension cord into this already significantly overtaxed PowerPoint, or you're going to have to unplug something. So for me, the bar became, are you going to make something so good that someone is going to unplug their automatic foot massage machine? Because that's the bar we should be aiming for. And getting right about that turns out to be a really complicated conversation. So most of my time at Intel these days is spent trying to work that out, right? What is sufficiently compelling? What is it that people will love? What is it that people will need? How do we not design things that frustrate the shit out of people? Those are all reasonable design briefs, right? That also means in the process you end up having conversations about where technology is going. Not just where it is now, but where it is going and what people's reactions to it are. And what I really want to kind of push here in the rest of this talk is one of the threads I have found as we started to have this conversation, not about technology for today, not about the things that are in some ways already in production, but about where the next generation of technology is going. And for me, we start to sort of then unpack this notion about what is our relationship between, in some ways, people and technology. And for me, I really got started in it, bizarrely enough, with this particular image. So, this is a screen grab from a video on YouTube. This is a 47 second video in which a Furby, we may remember those squeaky digital pets, talks to Apple Siri. You can imagine what this conversation is like. <laughs> 47 seconds in which the, the Furby wiggles its happy little ears and flutters its eyelashes and goes, ah, 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 ah. and Siri says, Would you like me to call Shell oil? <laughs> And the furby goes, la, 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 la. And the series says, I can't find Graham in your phone book. (laughs) And it goes on for 47 blissful seconds of this, right? And the first time I saw it, I thought it was hysterical. And then I found I kept coming back to it, because there was something in it that was actually surprisingly revealing. Because it turns out, while that's funny, right, to stage that, there's also something really significant in it. Because I realized as a researcher, what I was looking at was a genealogy of talking objects. Here were digital things that talked. You know, Furby didn't talk very well. Siri talks in a kind of complicated way, but they're both objects that talked, right? But staging it as a conversation then pushed and revealed a second thing. Because the second thing is the difference between the Furby and the Siri is that the Siri listens. And the promise of listening is the promise of a completely different shift in what computation might mean to human beings. If all the Furby does is talk, but what the Siri does is promise to listen, imperfectly as she does, not natural language, but you know, listen, There's something about what then gets anticipated about where computation is going. Because listening suggests a relationship. It suggests affect. It suggests a duty of care. It suggests the possibility of reciprocity. All the things that computation hasn't historically had, right? I spent enough time in this field. You know, this is an area where we talk about human-computer interaction. And the interaction's the important word, right? It's command and control. You type a thing in, a thing happens. There's not a lot of anticipatory behavior, there's not a lot of reciprocity, there's not a sense that the machine is looking after you in any particular way. Indeed, you know, frankly, as I listen to kids, sort of people in whose homes I spend my time, listening to their way they talk about technology, it is with a great deal of frustration. I had a consumer say to me many years ago that she thought of the technology in her home as being like a backpack full of baby birds with their mouths all open, screaming, feed me, feed me, feed me. And what she wanted to do was zip up the backpack and throw it in the river, which is a kind of graphic image. But there's something about the fact that every object we have in our lives demands a plug and power and content, and it needs passwords, and it wants drivers, and every single one of them operates slightly differently. And if they were people, you'd have dumped them a long time ago because they're A, incredibly needy, and B, incredibly insecure. How many times has your computer said to you, are you sure you want to connect to that network? (laughs) Yes. Are you absolutely, positively, 100% sure you want to delete that object? Yes. Are you sure you want to connect to the network? Yes, because I connect to it every morning. (laughs) You'd break up with them if they were people. The only reason you stay with them is the internet. Which is probably not good. So, I start to say to my colleagues, wouldn't it be interesting if we go from talking about human-computer interactions, to talking about human-computer relations. Paradigm shift, I say, to my engineering colleagues, oh my god, like got huge implications for everything from underlying architecture to hardware software integration to the UI to how we think about the back end on the data side, all sorts of stuff. And I thought this was kind of exciting. And my colleagues, who were otherwise incredibly rational, sensible people, said to me, no, that would be terrible. I'm like, what? And they said, no, if the machine is smart enough to have a relationship with us, the first thing it will do is kill
3: us. (laughs) And I went, what?
2: And they're like, yes. If machines are smart enough to care for us, then death will ensue. And the first person who said this to me, I thought, well, you've always been a bit neurotic. And so I just kind of let it go, right? But the time I had about seven conversations this way, and they kept saying to me, no, nothing good will come of it. Death will ensue. I sort of went, that's a really weird kind of anxiety, right? Where does that come from to imagine that smartness is bad? And for a while I thought it might just be my own sort of, you know, engineers inside the company, so I went kind of, you know, as you do, looking around. And on one of my favourite newsfeed sites as I'm having this conversation, on Gawker in June comes the headline, your coffee pot could attack you at any moment. And I think my coffee pot can barely make coffee. I think its capacity to get off the countertop, hunt me down and kill me is slim to none. But the fact that there is an entire language for this that pervades popular culture is fascinating, right? It runs through all kinds of things. We attribute agency and malintent to things like coffee pots, but much further down the track than that, right? We sort of attribute malintent to a whole series of other computational objects. And smartness in this way suddenly gets allied to consciousness, and if machines achieve consciousness, apparently like this coffee pot, the very next thing they will do is kill us. And I thought, that is a fascinating anxiety, right? And I had sort of, you know, one of those aha moments of going, all right, before I can talk about human-computer relationships, I'm gonna need to backtrack this anxiety. And effectively, although I don't think I quite told my colleagues at this at work, this was kind of a Foucauldian moment, right, of an archeology span of knowledge, a genealogy of a thought. Where does that anxiety come from, and how do you start to go backwards to find it? So for the last six months, I have bored everyone shitless by trying to work this out. And it turns out you have to start in a very particular place. So in the 1600s in France and in Switzerland, a number of people worked out how to stabilise time. Time went from being something colloquial, something being local, something being localised, to something that was standardised through the manufacturing of clocks. Clocks, animated in this very strange way, controlled time. Time got stabilised and watches took on and clocks took on a life of their own. What's fascinating is that it took less than 100 years for people to go, hmm, if you can make a watch clock go round and round and round, there's something in there you could do something more interesting with. And effectively, you know, think of this as hacking of clocks. By the early 1700s, a whole bunch of people worked out that if you took apart clocks, you could take the mechanism inside the clock and animate something else. And a whole series, effectively, of what we would now think of as automatons were born across Europe by people who were basically dismantling clocks and working out how to take the gears and make something else move. First experiments in this were particularly uninteresting. But by the middle of the 1700s, people were really pushing on what you could do with watch parts to make other things come to life. And the choices about what was made and the kind of notions that propelled this forward are really important to understanding why it is we think things will kill us. One of the most significant kind of breakthroughs in this moment of the kind of the history of the automaton comes in 1736 a man named Jacques Vaucusson, who before this had made a series of kind of musical instruments that played themselves. He was very interested in how you made a flute play itself. Uh, He discovered that in order to make the sound right, you actually had to not have metal strikes on the metal keys, but you actually had to glove the hand in flesh because it makes a completely different noise. He tanned a a cowhide, I should say clearly here, not a human hand. Um, He did that, but that really wasn't enough for him. And he got really obsessed with how you would make things more and more lifelike. And so the thing for which he is most famous is something called the digesting duck. Uh, it had about 400 working parts. It was duck sized So, you know, pick your average kind of duck. And it was really ducky. I mean, it did like duck stuff. It waddled, so it could move across the stage. It could gobble, so its little beak clattered the way happily. Those of you who spent time around ducks know that's what ducks do. Um, Because it was good to have an interaction with the duck, you could feed the duck, so that was totally excellent. The duck waddles up to you, it clacks its beak, you stick food in its mouth. Vaucassant had worked out that he could use vulcanized rubber, which had just come onto the market in Europe at that point, to create a digestive tract and filled it with water, so that now the duck has waddled up to you, it's clacked its beak, you've stuck food down its mouth, and it starts to digest. any of you who grew up in the country know what happens next for ducks. (laughs) There is waddling, there is eating, there is beak clacking, and then there is shitting. And so what this duck actually did, its most spectacular function was this duck pooed. So it fed, it ate, it digested, and things came out the back as it waddled across the stages of Europe. Now it turned out, while Vocason had secretly hoped he could work out how to make this duck actually digest, that turned out to be a bridge too far or a digestive tra- tract too far, or whatever kind of image you'd like to use here. What he actually did was had to fake it. So he created two reservoirs inside this duck, a reservoir where the food went and a reservoir that was pre cached with poo. That then released itself on a I know it's totally splendid, isn't it? That released itself on a kind of, you know, a pathway. This duck found its life all over the courts of, of Europe. It was considered to be genuinely extraordinary because it was so incredibly lifelike. It did everything that ducks did. It was very duck-like. It sort of inhabited duckness. And it started down a path for automatons where the prize in Western Europe became, how much more lifelike can you make it? How much closer to the real thing can you get? This duck goes on to having a, you know, a whole other life, as does Vocasson. Voltaire wrote of this duck that without this duck, there would have been no glory for France. <laughs> I leave that to you as both a comment on Voltaire and a comment on the duck. <laughs> Vocasson goes on, after making this duck and several others, to realize that what he has worked out to do with mechanization would actually be much better used making um, mechanized looms. And he finds himself making all manner of early, effectively, mechanization beyond this. But a whole series of these automatons find their way across Europe and in turn start to create just the beginning niggling of anxiety. What does it mean to create something that looks lifelike and does lifelike things but is not animated by the living flesh, but is animated by clock tarts, right? And there's this faint, niggling anxiety about these objects, so much so that many of them get destroyed in the early 1800s. They don't persist to the present day. This one has disappeared very quickly. But there's something that starts here about the uncanniness that you know Freud would later write about well, nearly 150 years later that becomes really important. Of course, the second moment where it is abundantly clear that the fear gets located happens about 80 years later. So by the turn of the 1800s, mechanization had gone from being things in the toys of the courts of Europe to things in the factories of Europe. By 1812, those of us in Australia who know our history know there's this really important thing that happens in England in the summer of 1812, when it suddenly becomes clear that the mechanization of looms is here to stay, that there is a profound shift about to happen in labor and labor practice, and that a series of very large looms will replace human labor. So now the machine doesn't threaten to be duck-like or life-like. It threatens to eclipse humanity. Unsurprisingly, what follows in an 18-month period is this incredible series of rolling attacks across <coughs> England where workers who are being replaced by machines attack the machines. What's fascinating looking at it from the lens of today is that there were some ways that that distributed, that knowledge moved about attacking the machines that should echo something that's happened recently. Because it turned out, as the machines were being destroyed, the stories about the destruction moved ahead of the destruction itself, and in ways that were deeply conscious and deliberate. So for this particular group of people, they knew that if they had a leader attached to this movement, he'd be arrested at once. And they knew that labeling someone as the head of this would put them in incredible danger. And it was very clear that this movement was going to result in the execution of a number of people, so they didn't want to do that. And so one of the things that happens is the deliberate creation of a fictive character to lead this movement. He is given a name, he is given a persona, he is given a dress, and a whole series of songs said to be written by him start to spread across England, as do the poems that he writes. And this is in a period you have to remember, so 1812 is also in the middle of the rise of the romantic poets. So we have Byron and Scott and a whole lot of other people writing poetry about the dark satanic mills and about the glory of a greener England. The Robin Hood story has just come back into circulation again. So there was an incredible kind of desire and delight in the notion of someone sticking it to the man, effectively. Um, And wonderfully, this character starts to pen his poems and his letters, signed, Ned Ludd, Robin Hood's Cave, Sherwood Forest. And these things circulate across Europe and across England. Think of this as being viral videos before there were viral videos. Think of this as being, you know, basically Occupy before there was Occupy. The story spread ahead of the movement, the movement touched down. For 18 months, there was a period where effectively things got destroyed fairly aggressively across England. Interestingly, it drew incredible sides in the aristocracy and in the sort of what would have. In some ways, being the thought leadership of the period, Byron gets up and gives his maiden speech in the House of Parliament in defense of the Luddites, as the last great sort of bailiwicks of English lifestyle that you know the Luddites are the last great defense of the England that is good and glorious. Labour historians are completely split on whether this is a good thing or a bad thing. Uh, One of the very big Labour historians at the time writes an incredible set of tracks about whether this is good or bad. It goes on and on. By 1813, British Parliament rules that if you are caught to be one of these people, you get two choices. Execution or transportation to Australia. Now, astonishingly a number of people chose to be executed. (laughs) I'm not sure what that's about, but I also know that our Labour movement got part of its jumpstart because those were the people who came to Australia. Amazingly enough, for something that lasted only 18 months, for something that became almost incidental to labor practice and to the technology, we still know their name. (coughs) And we still use that name in common parlance now. These are, of course, the Luddites. And we use it as a moment to talk about certain kinds of anxieties about technology, long divorced from, in some ways, the action that they invoked. But here is a moment where machines threaten to replace people. We destroy the machines, because that's the only appropriate response. The machines continue on, but we remember the name of the destruction. And the name of the destruction is Luddite. If you move only three years forward, there's another incredibly important thing that happens. That, for me, is the moment that kind of grounds the anxiety in a way we never get away from again. So 1816, summertime. Been a big volcanic explosion the summer of 1816 looked actually like this. It was dark, it was wet, it was stormy, it was kind of faintly unpleasant. The aristocracy retreated to their country houses and got drunk. There were a series of people who got very drunk and went to Europe. There was a very famous house party that happens in the summer of 1816 constituted by a man whose epitaph would become mad, bad and dangerous to know, which sounds delightfully modern in 1816. Anyway... He has this house party, he has his best friend there, his best friend has brought the woman he is having a relationship with who is not yet his wife. She has brought her half-sister who is having a relationship with the man who was having the house party. The house party's man has got his doctor there and a few other people. This should sound like the gossip pages of New Idea because basically it was. This was sort of you know the moment of OK and Grazia magazine circa 1816. <sighs> The man who is organizing this dinner party in the way that I think is only common of a, that particular period declares that he is incredibly, incredibly bored. And it is the task of everyone at this dinner party to go away and write a story that will shock him and come back the next day and read them. Like, okay. And so everyone goes away to their rooms. It's sort of astonishing, right? You're like, really? <laughs> they'll go away to their rooms, they all write stories and they all come back the next morning and compare basically notes. Three of the most important shock narratives get written that night. The first zombie story is written by the half-sister of this author to impress Byron. He is unimpressed. He is the man organizing this party. Byron's doctor writes the first vampire story. And Byron's best friend's girlfriend, whose mother was the first suffragette and whose father was the labor historian writing about the Luddites, she writes the story of Frankenstein and Frankenstein's monster. And it is a story that is about all the things she had already seen. It was about the automaton she'd been exposed to in Egyptian hall in Piccadilly. It was about the vivisection she was seeing, because her boyfriend was taking her to see that stuff. One can only begin to imagine what he thought he would get out of it. <laughs> it was about experiments in electricity she had seen, and it was about pulling all of those things together in the what is effectively the quintessential story in our literary tradition, of what it means to make life. This is a story about a man who attempts to make life, who stitches body parts together, who uses electricity to animate it, and about the life of that thing that he makes. And that monster who desperately tries to work out how to be human, who tries to be human by peering through the walls of houses, watching other human beings, desperately working out what the lesson is to humanness. And about the ultimate moment when it's clear that we will never accept, this stitched together thing as being human and the consequence where it attempts to kill its creator. It turns out that was a really incredibly compelling narrative. The book goes into print the next year and has never been out of print since. It has been the subject of movies, of television. It also has fallen into our popular culture, although ironically incorrectly, we talk about things being Frankenstein-esque. Though, in fact, Frankenstein is the name of the doctor and the monster is actually the monster, but calling things monster-esque kind of loses something in the translation. But here's this other image that has stayed with us, right? That indelibly threads its way through all kinds of things and becomes this moral tale about what happens when, effectively, in this case, if you wanted to have a feminist critique of it, man makes life. Usually he does it badly and it kills him. Excellent, we say. So, Where does that get you? Well, it turns out... You've had the kind of automatons and you've had the machines. By the middle of the 1800s, people have worked out how to start thinking about these machines as doing levels of abstraction. So it's no longer about creating life and creating labor. It's about machines that can start to have ideas of their own, a level of abstraction. The most famous of this in the 1800s is Babbage's Differential Engine, uh, which is built mostly in literary texts and not as an actual object and is only given life when someone actually starts to go, okay, well you've got this thing that does this abstraction, what the hell are you gonna do with it? And there is a young woman who has grown up being trained by her somewhat querulous mother that she should Askew art and poetry, she was raised entirely in a scientific frame. She's kind of the first child of the 20th century, in some ways long before the 20th century, the first child of the Victorian era. Her mother was deeply concerned she should never be exposed to poetry or art, because as far as she was concerned, that was where madness lay in her family. This is a child who is a child of mathematics and of science. She goes on to do some incredibly interesting work in science and is the first person to think about in an imaginative way what you might do with the differential engine. She's basically the first woman computer programmer. She wrote the first, effectively I think of it as mobile app, basically. It was an app more than a program, right? Or the first algorithm. Her name is Ada Lovelace. She writes the first stories that effectively make this machine work. And for the purposes of this narrative, because there are only eight people involved in this story, she is actually Byron's daughter. So the Countess Ada Lovelace, the Countess of Numbers, is the legacy of Byron, right? So Byron passes through her to this machine. This machine, of course, doesn't get built until the 20th century, and when it is built, it is built for a series of complicated purposes that I want to get to in a minute. But first I need to talk about where the technology touches down in America, because that becomes an important part of this story shortly. So think about all of those moving pieces, think about early experiments in effectively mechanization. This genuinely creepy looking thing is a doll made by Thomas Edison. Came out of his factory, Uh, she was about about this height, so uh, duck height, as it turns out. <laughs> it's about duck height. Um, her extraordinary claim to fame is that she's metal body. Inside her metal body, you can just see under you know, this, This little tiny things about this big. It was a miniature phonographic player. It had one metal ring, which is the thing in this picture here. And when you wound the back of this doll, it sang. They created the doll. that's particularly special. She had metal vents right here. When you put her in a dress and you wound the clock, her bosom heaved attractively while she sang Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. They've finally found one of the original phonograph records, and if you are on YouTube, you can actually hear the thing singing Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. It is the most terrifying thing I have ever heard. Like, if you had a doll that sang that to you, you'd never go to sleep again. I mean, it's genuinely horrifying, right? And this is the end, the final end point of mechanization for toys, right? Because effectively, this kind of wonder, this sort of notion of things gets replaced by movies. This is 1890, by the 1900s, we've gone to celluloid as our form of magic, right? Things don't need to wind up because now things can be projected. And she's the last kind of cusp moment of what all that looks like. But she is genuinely, (coughs) heaving bosom and all, kind of horrifying. And she was really expensive. She cost $25 in a period where that was a month's worth of salary for the average kind of middle-class household. Unsurprisingly, 25,000 of them sold, that was it. Cancelled, we moved on to other things. And Edison moved on to clearly much more interesting stuff. Back in England, mechanization has continued, abstraction has continued. And by the 1940s and late, well, late 1930s, early 1940s, people have started to work out that Babbage had been onto something with abstraction, right? That he had understood something interesting in terms of using technology to create levels of abstraction that weren't possible for humans. And people started going back to the Babbage engine because in the 1940s, we're at this point in the middle of World War II, the Enigma machine is operating in Germany, there are coded messages moving around the world that have significant impact for the Allied forces in the course of the war. A series of mathematicians are summoned to two places in the world, one in Bletchley Park in England and one in Maryland in the United States and are given the task of attempting to break the code of the Enigma. Of course, we know that you know, it wasn't really effectively broken until an Enigma machine turned up in someone's hand so they could reverse engineer it. But in the process of trying to reverse engineer and crack the Enigma code, people started moving into higher and higher levels of computation and abstraction. The first computers were effectively built in Bletchley Park in the 1940s. They were run by a series of mathematicians who were held back from military service so that they could crack these problems. And there is some truly spectacular stuff that happened in that period in terms of both applied and pure mathematics. Arguably, the most brilliant and the most troubled of all of those people was a man named Alan Turing. Turing was born in Orissa, so in an Indian colony. He was brought back to England, sent to a boarding school, turned out to be a mathematical genius, fast-tracked through university, and brought to Bletchley Park. Of course, the harder thing for Turing in this period was that in a time when it was desperately, desperately complicated, he was gay. He had a series of lovers. He kept it very quiet. It was very discreet. His work at Bletchley Park continued on pace, but in the immediate after-war period, he was caught in a fairly indelicate situation. Uh, his security clearance was revoked. He was cast out of mathematics and computation in England and seen as being an incredible risk to the English mathematical tradition and computation. So he found himself suddenly exiled from all the people he'd talked to, exiled from the places he had worked and from the technology he had worked in. He found himself in a new university, in a new department, having to struggle to think about what he was going to do without access to the technology that he had had, and clearly in a period of time where his colleagues didn't quite know how to deal with him because it was a period of extraordinary homophobia and a great deal of bigotry. In that period, Turing writes what is one of the most important scientific articles of the 20th 20th century. authors a piece called, Can the Machine Think? That is incredibly provocative, because by asking the question, you allow the possibility that the answer might be yes. In this article, he spells out something called the Turing Test, uh, a test that to this day has not yet been passed, but a test that basically says, we will know computation can think at the point that a human being, judging a machine and a computer behind a wall, can't tell the difference between the machine and the computer. I'm sort of mesmerized by the presence of the wall there. It suddenly takes me back to Frankenstein's monster peering through the wall. But you know, there's something about this test, right? Of course, for a whole lot of other people, this article is less interesting as science fact and more interesting as a provocation for science fiction. Clearly, Can Machines Think becomes the basis of artificial intelligence work and really the basis of the computer human industry, computer, you know, the HCI space. But it also becomes the fodder for some really important science fiction in the second half of the 20th century. Clearly, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep by Philip K. Dick is the reworking of this story because Dick understands it's never gonna be about whether the machines can think or not. It's gonna be about whether the machines can feel. And what will it mean if they can feel? And if you remember you know, that narrative, the novella or Blade Runner, you know that the Turing test there gets reprised as a test about can you have a memory? Do you have a childhood? Is that childhood real? And here it becomes clear that the anxiety is not just about the thinking, but about the feeling. Because what's being unpacked through Philip K. Dick's work and through the work of much science fiction, but also through the work of science fact, is increasingly this philosophical question about what makes us human. This is not just about technology, this is about what makes us us, and about where the line is between us and everyone else. Is the line drawn because of our ability to think? Is it our ability to reason? Or is it our ability to emote and create feelings and a life? And clearly for science fiction authors, they have a very particular answer to that question, and science fact moves in a different way. Nonetheless, when you start to pull all those narratives back together, the automatons, the Luddites, Shelley herself, this kind of levels of abstraction and replacement of human labor by machinery, it is unsurprising that by the 1980s, all of that comes together in one, in some ways, movie that galvanizes everyone's anxiety, which is, of course, this. We all know. That, you know, Skynet goes live and the first thing it does is kill us. The machine achieves consciousness depending on which version of the movie you're watching. You know, 1987, 1991, 2010, 2018. At some point, Skynet is gonna go live and we're all done. That is basically how this narrative persists. Remarkably, this is incredibly powerful, not just as science fiction, but in shaping people's notions about what it means to have smart technology. And of course, part of the success of this of 2001 A Space Odyssey and of a whole lot of other things is that they are tapping into these stories that stretch all the way back to the duck and to the looms and to Frankenstein's monster. And when I put all of that together, I kind of went, okay, I understand why my colleagues think the machinery is gonna kill them. I mean, clearly they're nuts, because it's not gonna happen. But I can see where that came from. And then I had the kind of what I think of as the kind of anthropological moment here of going, okay, that's one story, what if there are others? What if the same technology turns up somewhere else and the narrative that gets written on top of it is completely different? So I said, what if we went somewhere else and asked the same question? Does the machinery create the same anxiety? And if not, why not? So I went looking for places where the watch and the clock had gone. I basically said watch parts were feral in the 1700s. Where else did they turn up? And it turns up clocks were sent from France to China. They were taken from China to Japan where they were disassembled by Japanese engineers who went, hmm, interesting, what can we do with this? And the very first thing they made were karakuri, little tiny wind-up dolls, about this big. This is the most famous of them. It's a teacup-bearing robot. You put tea in its cup, it waddles across the table. You take the teacup up, the release in weight makes it waddle all the way back across the table. Completely excellent, totally not real. Nothing about that is simulacrum, nothing about that is trying to make something that already existed. Nothing about that is saying, I will replace human labor with a little tiny machine that delivers tea. Because clearly that was not what was happening. Instead, what you have is an object that is part of a series of ceremonial activities. The tea ceremony, incredibly important in Japan then, as in some ways it is now. So here is an object, instead of being about realness, that is about wonder, it's about grace, it's about beauty, it's about ritual all the same technology pieces completely different story about where it goes and i went okay good parts touch down different narrative and then you have to ask the question does it consist you know does that persist through time and i was in japan about oh god about 3 months ago now with my colleagues and we were driving near one of the intel facilities and i saw a sign out of the window of the car and you know screamed as you do, stop the car. And they're like, are you okay? I'm like, stop the car. So I get out in traffic, it's always a good look, and backtrack to this sign. And you know they've gotten out of the car, like what the hell is she doing? Why is she doing this? I'm like, what is this? And they're like, what do you mean? I'm like, well, what is it? I'm like, well, it's a robot zone. Like, okay, good. <laughs> Excellent. What does it say? And they're like, well, it says robot zone. I'm like, okay, good. <laughs> what does it say under that? Like, oh, so it says, this is an autonomous robot zone. Two meters in from the curb, there will be autonomous robots. And I go, yes. They're like, what do you mean, yes? I'm like, well, what kind of robots? Like autonomous robots. I'm like, you mean like segways? They're like, no, no, we don't know why that's there. No, just autonomous robots. (laughs) Like, what kind of autonomous robots? They're like, autonomous robots. I'm like, well, aren't you concerned? There are robots running around. They're like, no, it says they're two meters in from the curb. I'm like... (laughs) aren't you concerned that there are autonomous robots running around? They're like, no, Genevieve, that's what the sign is telling you. They're two meters in from the curb, that's where the robots are. I'm like, aren't you worried? They're like, no. I'm like, but they're autonomous robots. What kind of robots? They're like, autonomous robots. And this conversation kind of at this point, sort of looping around. And I'm like, aren't you concerned that the robots might be a hazard? They're like, no, they are two meters in from the curb. And I try one more time, and one of my colleagues knows me well enough. He's like, what is the problem? I'm like, well, so I've just been doing this work, and I kind of think if this was a sign in America, people would think the robots would kill them. They wouldn't stay two meters from the curb. They'd, like, run away. And they're like, why would they think that? I'm like, well, because, you know, they're pretty convinced the technology's going to kill them. They're like, that's just science fiction. excellent. So why aren't you frightened about the robots? They're like, well, because there's a sign. I'm like, okay, beyond the sign. Like, after the sign, why aren't you frightened? They're like, well, because robots are our friends. And I'm like, okay, where's that come from? Like we grew up with stories about robots. We had cartoon books about robots. During the war, there were robot cartoons. Roboticists are really important in Japanese culture. And then they started to talk about the roboticists, and I've subsequently read a lot of their work. So the Japanese roboticists of the 1970s, 1980s, and 1990s practiced a very different notion of science here. Most sort of principled Japanese robot. A man who actually, in his early life, coined the term the uncanny valley, goes on to talk about the fact that in his mind, robots represent our better nature. They're our better angels. They become our best selves. We pour into robots the best things about us. He goes on to say that one of the most remarkable things about robots in his mind is that they stand a better chance of achieving Buddhahood than people ever will, because they're capable of patience and of grace. And in his mind, he couldn't understand if that was the trajectory of robots, why you'd ever imagine they'd kill you. Because if they were your best selves, that hardly makes them murderers. And so here you have same technology. In fact, the very same technology. It's not even the same technology being remade. It is the same technology turning up and telling a completely different story. And I started to realize at that point that this wasn't a story about technology and people. This was a story about humanity. What is it that makes us human? Where do we draw the line between ourselves and technology? And how do we think about the work that technology does in our lives? And so I thought, for the sake of completeness, I should probably go have a look at a few other traditions. Because good anthropologist, you get to go kind of, you know, play in a few other people's cultural practices and see what else you can dig up. Well, it turns out, if you look in Islam, there are two incredibly important scientific tracts. One written in 820 AD, and one written in 1206 AD. One by an individual, one by three brothers. Both books share the same title. Uh, effectively, the ingenious, the book of ingenious mechanical devices, and the book of ingenious devices. Not helpful both pretty much the same book effectively. What these books do is however set out the value of levers, of early wheel technology, of mechanization, and all these kind of things. If you look at the contents of those books, some of it's about the movement and storage of water, something in Australia we'd be deeply familiar with, but the rest of it is actually about objects for the household that are again, not about making things that existed or making things that were substitutes for things that existed, but making new things entirely. This is probably the most obvious of those. This comes out of the 1820 book. And this is a peacock, a mechanical peacock, that pours water out of its mouth for salah. So five times a day, if you're a Muslim, you wash your hands, you wash your feet before you pray. This is an object so that the water never has to touch anyone else's hands before it gets to yours. It's an object, again, of beauty. Now, those of you who spend time around peacocks know that while they're very pretty, they're really kind of raucous and ghastly in all sorts of other ways. So the notion of being mechanical isn't a bad thing. But again, it's not about the peacocks na- native nature. Right? This is not again about the duck. This is not about the kind of you know duckness here. This is about a reimagining of what a peacock could do and a reimagining of what the work of technology might be here. Here, the work of technology is about ritual. It's about sustaining cultural activity. It's about spirituality. It's about goodness and godliness a very different kind of notion. It's not about replacing human labor at all. And if you push back just a little bit further, because I always think it's good to do that, and you look at the tradition in India, you find that even the linguistic terminology has a different sense and sensibility. So the word in Hindi from Sanskrit for machine is the word yantra. The word yantra means an object that controls, effectively means the object that controls the forces within it. has control over the forces within it (laughs) not quite the way we understand machines it's in fact a very different understanding of what that might be and when you talk about the history of technology in that tradition you see very different stories wonderfully if you read some of the early Sanskrit poetry Vishnu has robots Vishnu has automatons Vishnu has an automaton that washes his feet it is clearly seen not to be human it is clearly seen to be mechanical And it's clearly seen to be a perfectly reasonable thing for a god to have knocking around one of his houses. you know, automaton foot-washing object. He also has a bunch of flying cars. Flying vimanas, sort of run through Sanskrit philosophy and notions about the gods having flying cars is sort of wonderful here, right? But starts to suggest indeed again that the notion that there are machines and there are people and that there is a bright light between them might not be a human universal truth. It might be a post-enlightenment rhetorical, intellectual move. And that the consequences of that might be that not everyone imagines the machines are gonna kill them. And not everyone imagines that same trajectory because in fact there are different trajectories at work. And then because it's always good to think about what is the symbolic work that technology do does and how it fits into places, I wanted to go to one more place as I was thinking about this kind of global audit of our relationships to technology. In traditional Chinese culture, there is a festival once a year, the period of Qingming. It's a time when you look after and venerate your ancestors. During that time, you visit the shrines and temples and graves of your ancestors. You sweep them clean and you tend to their needs. One of the ways you do that is by burning paper objects. The fire transforms those paper objects into real objects in the hands of your ancestors. It's a form of filial piety. It's a form of care. Historically, the places that made the technology that was or made the technology and the objects that were sold here were really kind of remarkable, right? In the 1930s, there was a man famous in Shanghai for his ability to make full-size paper bentleys to be burnt for your ancestors. There is an entire economy of things that need to be burnt, right? You have to burn paper money. My supervisor who did his work in China back in the 70s used to say that in Chinese cosmology, The only thing that the afterlife is inhabited by other than your ancestors is bureaucrats. And so you need money to bribe them. And so the first thing you always burn at a Chinese funeral and at Qingming is paper money for the ancestors to continue to get the things they need from the bureaucrats. You also obviously have to burn other things, food, clothing, increasingly all sorts of other things. If you go to the shops that sell this, even here in Melbourne, you will find an incredible panoply of things that are considered to be absolutely necessary for the lives of your relatives. Mobile phones, televisions, rice cookers, cars, automatic foot massage machines—the full nine yards. The first time I encountered this, Larissa remembers, this was over ten years ago, and I was in Ipoh in Malaysia, and I was with some of my colleagues, and we, she took me to one of these stores, and she bought a paper mobile phone. And I said, you know, I kind of knew what it was, but I was like, what's that? Like, you know, mobile phone for my, my auntie. She's like, that's nice, is it her first phone? She's like, no, it's her second. I was like, okay. It's like, who's she calling on this phone? And this, My friend looks at me and says, what? I'm like, well, is she calling you? She's like, that not be ridiculous. She's calling all of her sisters. They're dead too. Okay, good. So here's a quick kind of ecosystem of how this technology works. So last year I went to my favorite spirit money shop in Singapore, and I found this, clearly, an iPad. Um, he only had two which was kind of unusual because he's usually got a bazillion things there and in fact there were lots and lots of mobile phones and lots and lots of cameras and lots and lots of DVD players and lots and lots of black American Express cards and lots and lots of passports but there are only two iPads and so I bought them both and I said to him you don't have many why only two he's like they're iPads they're scarce Excellent. (laughs) so I take my iPads I go up to Intel's facility in Penang where we have you know, about 5,000 people. And I was saying that I had gotten these iPads, and I was promptly offered money for them by my colleagues at Intel who said, you don't understand, Genevieve. They ran out of iPhones and iPads at the Spirit Money shops here six weeks ago. How much do you want for them? So I sold one of them off and kept the other, as you do. What this is here to also remind me is that even if we don't draw a bright light between what makes us human and what makes us not human about where the technology sits. The technology itself isn't just physical, right? It's also symbolic. It does cultural work. It does family work. It does, in this case, duty of care family work. And it also follows the logic of many other things, right? What happens in the world of the dead in this case is remarkably like the world of the living. Scarcity of technology, the symbolic value of technology moves across this register very, very quickly. And here the thing that's important is not the division between what makes us human and what is the technology, but the fact that the technology is part of what it means to be human because it's part of what it means to be not only living but dead. So if you have all of those of spectrums, it's also important to remember that not everyone has always imagined in the West that technology would kill them. And I wanted to end with two quick examples of how it is the case that we tell other stories about technology when it suits us. In the early days in the United States, in the early days of electrification, there were incredible challenges of convincing American consumers to electrify their homes. Frankly, you know, electricity was like the internet, and it only had one killer app, and the killer app was a light bulb. And if your house was already lit by gas or by candles or by windows, that was a kind of uncompelling killer app, because there was also a bloke saying he was going to drill a hole in your wall and string a lot of wires up, and it was kind of a lot of stuff to imagine you were going to do. I I don't know about many of you, but my great-grandmother grew up here in Melbourne and she remembers the days when her home was electrified and it was a big deal because a bloke came and drilled a hole through the wall and he made a big mess and she was still talking about it when I was a child 60 years later. (laughs) So clearly there was this kind of destabilization that happened. But in the United States, it was really hard to convince people they needed electricity. There was a lot of debate about it. There were a series of effectively, you know, between the Chicago's World Fair and Broadway, the Great White Way, as it was known, it was known that way because people were actually brought to see it. People were bused in from the Midwest. Thursday night, traveled all day Friday, got to New York on Saturday, looked at the lights Saturday night, got back in the bus and went back to Iowa or Illinois or <coughs> any other place in the Midwest. But effectively what was being happened was those bus trips were being sponsored by electrical companies to expose people to electricity. Come see it, come see its beauty, come see what it will do for you. Come in some ways be enchanted by it, right? See it as a spectacle. And then we'll find some practical things to do about it. Lots of people were starting to tell the stories about how electricity was beautiful, about how it was a wonder, how it was in some ways, you know, this spectacular thing. My favorite of these, however, comes from upstate New York, from Niagara. Where there was a man in charge of the local power plant. Um, he found himself with an electrical surplus after he electrified all of the factories in town. He decided that he wanted to work out how to electrify the homes. People were resistant. He decided that really what he needed to do was explain to people the beauty that was electricity. So he had some dinner parties and invited people to his house to see the electricity in his house, which kind of makes sense. Um, he had a very big house, kind of think, you know, those big American mansions. He had the ground floor of his house modified and laid this incredibly fine, about this wide, track, inset on the wooden floors of his house. And on the night of these dinner parties, he would employ women from the local community. He would put them in skates. He would clamp them into this track. He would stick light bulbs in their hands. And you know where this is going. He'd run a vault through them and the light bulbs lit up. I know, it's truly splendid. And they skated around the party all night long. Now, some things I should immediately add here. The voltage was low, talking about five to 10 watts. Um, I understand they were paid. No one was harmed doing this. And most wonderfully of all, they became known as the electric fairies, which is a beautiful name, right? Incredibly fashionable, it turned out to light up women with electricity. (laughs) Spread from upstate New York to Manhattan. Mary Astor went through a period of time where she would answer her door at Christmas by standing at the door on a metal plate that they ran voltage through, and she had a frock that was entirely sewn of light bulbs. And people would press the doorbell, and she would light up. Absolutely splendid. Uh, It quickly became clear that was not a winning proposition for Mary, so she employed a woman who became known as the bell girl, who when you press the doorbell, she lit up. Great outsourcing of labor, right? So it became something that most fashionable houses in Manhattan had for about a five-year window was a woman who lit up at the front door. Of course, there are much more sinister stories that get told about early electricity experiments. There are electrocuted elephants and dogs and people, and clearly there's some sort of sinister things that happened here. But there is a moment of time where this new technology is sold by its beauty and it's sold not as a thing that will kill you, but a thing that will delight you, a thing that will literally light you up. And there's something quite spectacular about how you can have running in parallel a fear of what the technology will do to you along with a sense that the technology is beautiful and not yet sinister, just pretty. And then, of course, advertising, you know, we get into a whole lot of other things. And by the 1950s, we start to actually quite explicitly use different (laughs) language about certain kinds of technology. So while Alan Turing is asking the question, can machines think, Bell Labs on the other side of the Atlantic is saying, you should just fall in love with your technology, and here it is. It is the princess phone, you will love it. The best part about this advertising, and it's not in this image here, but this object was created in 1959 in Bell Labs. Bell Labs had a bunch of technological advancements. They hired a guy named Henry Dreyfus who was basically the Jonathan Ives of his day, leading industrial designer. They said to him, we've got this kind of problem, everyone's got a phone, we want them to buy more phones, help and we've got some stuff. And he said, well, you know, interestingly enough, he said, you're actually going to have to get women. Because women will buy more technology for the home, but you're going to have to make it compelling, and the stuff you have is not compelling. He says, you're going to have to think about it from a different perspective. You're going to have to think about its weight, its form factor, how it feels in your hand. It's going to need to be a little bit special. It might need to be some other color than black. And you're going to want to convince people they should stick it in their bedrooms. So completely different kind of design brief, right? He comes back with the princess phone. Never quite as big in Australia as it was in America. The phone, when it first came out in 1959 in Time magazine, the first advertisement for it read, It's little, it's lovely, it lights. America has fallen in love with the princess phone. At no point did it actually say what it did, it didn't say it made phone calls. In that way, it should look remarkably similar to the Apple ads that followed it 50 years later. It became the first example in some ways of experiential advertising in the technology space where it's not about the technology, it's about the emotional response they want you to have to it. And I think in some ways it's probably not surprising that when you look across where the fears of technology are, very few people think that Siri is going to kill them or that their phone will kill them, it's just computers. And so there's this parsing of the genealogies here, right, of who it is that we think will kill us and who we don't and about where the narratives collide and fall apart about what it means to imagine technology, consciousness, and humanity. So where does all of that leave us? Well, for me, it leaves me asking a series of questions, right? One of them is to imagine that the category technology might not be a stable one. What it means to say technology may actually be far less clear than it has historically seemed, right? Many different things, maybe technology, The words we use to describe technology may suggest it is not quite the same thing. What if technology has its own animating force? What if a machine is not a collection of bits, but a collection of its own energy that it controls? And of course, the consequences for that are really what it says about what it makes us human, is what makes us human our ability to reason and think. If so, Philip, you know, K. Dick and Turing are gonna be in pitch battle forever, because if thinking is what distinguishes us from computation, as soon as computation can think, we know where that ends. Death, extermination by Skynet, which will go live and kill us all. But I have to imagine there are some alternate possibilities here, right, about what does it mean to think about what it means to be human and to imagine that that is also a culturally located and a historically located conversation, about what it means to think about a relationship with technology, not just an interaction with technology, which, of course, also means re-in some ways imagining and visiting what it is to make us human. And from where I sit, part of the reason this conversation continues to be an interesting and useful one for me is if we can start to unpick and unthread just a little bit the conversation about what is technology and what is human, I think it creates a whole new space to have conversations about what it means to make new experiences, what we imagine the work is that technology can do, and even what it will mean for us to be, simply to be human, to be in the world, about how it is that technology will fit into our lives For me if you can start to unpack and in fact locate the anxiety to suggest that it's not global and not a totalizing narrative, in fact it's a very fragmentary one, for me creates this possibility of a different set of conversations and a different set of prospects and I imagine a different space in which to do our work and I frankly can't think of a more interesting place to get to be right, if you can pull those things apart, if you can imagine that the next possibility is a paradigm of relationships, not interactions, if we can imagine different ways to think about where technology will sit in our worlds and in our lives, and we will sit with it, I think that opens up an incredibly fertile space in which to engage, in which to design, in which to think, in which to critique, and in which to regulate. And so with that kind of prospect, I want to stop, because I need to have a drink of water and breathe. You.
1: We've, we've got about ten minutes for um, questions, so if people can—oh, um, we've already got one up there. <laughs> um, if you could just kind of stand up and do, yeah, and try and project, because okay. we haven't got.
3: Um, what is your opinion?
2: So I have to unleash the machine so they can kill you. Um, So the singularity, wow. Um, I actually am not always sure that I think the singularity is a utopian proposition. I sometimes think it is a dystopian one too, right? And often the singularity is used as a kind of end point of saying there will be a moment when humanity will cease because technology effectively will have become so sophisticated it's not clear what the role is for us. So I'm always interested by the fact that people use Kurzweil in both directions. And I'm very sort of clear about that play there about whether it is dystopic or utopic. For me, I think the more interesting things about Ray's work are not about the specific deadline, because he's moved that a few times. The singularity is supposed to happen in 2020. I think we're now out to 2050. And his notion about what it looks like has moved too. I think for me, some of the more interesting things are not what's in the singularity proposition, but what we actually see happening in the world right now. I think there's more interesting conversations to be having about data about big data, about the cloud, you know, Ray's kind of notions of the singularity in some ways don't have the kind of material culture particularity I'm interested in. And when I look at what it means to start dematerializing human consciousness, whether it is memory, whether it's activity, whether it is, you know, forms of social practice, all of that actually has incredible implications in a material world that aren't about, you know, the disappearance of humanity and the complete merging of people and technology. And frankly, you know, any one of you who owns a technical object knows that it's broken down at some point in the last week. So there are some things we'd have to get right that I know aren't in anyone's labs to just make it happen by 2050. But for me, there are things that are much more interesting before we get there that are actually places that I would prefer to spend my intellectual energy. So I think there is an entire critique we could be running. I don't know how many of you in the room are social scientists, but I think there is a whole interesting argument that we are not yet engaged in enough around data and big data and about the algorithms that rest on top of those and about the sense-making that is being conducted and about the ways that data is being mobilized inside conversations where I recently found myself arguing with some people who explained to me that data equal truth, which was really interesting um, when I sort of pushed back and went... Well, you know, which kind of data are you imagining, right? Um, wonderfully, there is a category sometimes bandied in American technical circles of called self confessional data. That would be what you tell Google. You didn't realize that was confessional data. It is. Probably not quite as sacrosanct as you imagined it were if that were the metaphor you were using. Um, nonetheless, you know, they sort of imagined that confessional data was all real and true, right? And we just finished some work, and some of my colleagues had finished a bunch of work looking at the ways in which people use online activities. And some of their disclosures online are quite deliberately untrue. So my colleague, Jeff Hancock at Cornell University, who wonderfully used to work on irony when he was in McGill, so ironic, pieces in email communication, moved to the United States to Cornell and discovered that his students didn't actually recognize irony. So he's actually proved categorically something many of us knew. And he started working on lying instead and did a series of projects looking at online dating sites because that looked like a good place to kind of traffic in it and discovered that 100% of people on online dating sites admit to lying, at least in America. Um, In Britain, 60% do, which means 40% of them are lying about lying. (laughs) Different problem, right? So if you end up with data that is untrue, the consequences for the algorithms that get written on top of it are sort of not uncomplicated, right? But I was really interested, I was sitting with some people who own big data sets, and they're very proprietal about them in a kind of linguistic way, was was their assertion that data was true in a way that was utterly pre-postmodern. So there was no, you know, fracturing of sign and sign, you know, signifier and sign, there was no notion that data didn't just equal truth, and it was a kind of replaying back to a a scientific discourse before we got to, you know, science and technology studies where we started to critique those relationships. And what was fascinating to me as I was listening to this unfolding of a conversation about data was that people were starting to imagine the algorithms you would write on top of these data sets to make new sense of them, right? Those algorithms in turn spawning new sets of data, those new sets of data in turn spawning new algorithms, all of which effectively at one point are predicated both on the lie and on the belief that the lie is true, which is doubly interesting. And then if you're an Australian, it's really hard not to look at all of that and go, "Mm, data spawning algorithms, algorithms spawning data, algorithms spawning more data, data spawning more algorithms, shit, the stuff is feral. (laughs) And we know what happens when things go feral in Australia. And then it just becomes a question of which kind of feral is it? Will the data be feral like bunnies? We knew it was feral almost the moment it happened. And we tried to contain it, we built fences, we engineered viruses, we had a few kind of you know, monumental anxieties about the feralness of the bunnies. Now imagine the feralness in the data in bunny mode. Or will it be feral like the camels were, where we didn't know they were feral for 50 years? And then we woke up one day and went, shit, we've got half a million camels, where did they come from? <laughs> and I can't tell which one of those it will be, because for me, which one of those it is, has huge consequences on not whether we get to the singularity or not, but what the next 40 years looks like, which for me is much more interesting. I think the notion that there will be a point where humanity and computation are indivisible is almost impossible to contemplate. Yes? Hi. um, G'day. You want to ask me about the singularity too? No. Good. (laughs) Uh, I want to ask about relationships. I mean, talking about, um, you've only just introduced the concept to us, so. um, But I'm thinking these devices in relations with us. But the difficulty is they're nearly all in relations with someone else. I mean, you've got the Kindle there, that's mm-hmm. in relation with Amazon already. Like the phones in relation to the yep. internet providers They're they they're pretty they're pretty dedicated to their relationships. So they're, they're quite promiscuous at some ways. They're quite promiscuous, but they're also like I don't know if that many of us have friends who are, when they're with us, so still upling with someone else and their, you know in their, their, their interests are so thoroughly invested in someone else all the time. Oh indeed. And I want to be clear here, I mean relationship as metaphor not necessarily as actuality. But I think there is something to be said here at the moment, while your Kindle may have a relationship with Amazon, it also does in fact have a relationship with you, but you do all the work in that relationship. And much of the gain sits somewhere else. And there's some things to start to think about if you start to reverse that equation just a little bit, and Kindles might be not the best example, there are better devices to think this one through on, but if you start to imagine even if it is simply you don't need to constantly reintroduce yourself to the object through a password because it recognizes you in some other slightly less laborious way. And we already have pieces of this, right? In some ways, for me, the interesting thing is that the devices have remained stubbornly not in relationships with us, while software and services have started to know us in all kinds of ways but not really acknowledge it. So, you know, every time you log on to Amazon, it will say, Oh, you're back. Here are some things we thought about that you might like while you were gone. Now of course that's complicated by the fact that Amazon assumes it is a one person per account kind of life and very few people I know actually have one user to their Amazon account. And most of that means that Amazon is offering you things where you think, why do I want that? (coughs) Oh wait, because my children bought that last week. Excellent. So we know that there's already the beginnings of the sort of the knowingness of relationships, but I think there's a piece here about what would it look like even if you start to, and I think this is partly where my engineering colleagues get very nervous, if you start to empower the technology not to have to need you for everything. At the moment, particularly computers and mobile phones, part of a legacy of architecture and design is that they require a great deal of your input to do things you don't really need to know about. So, you know, for instance, if you are on Skype, on your computer, you shouldn't have to tell your computer that this is a very bad time to commence backing up your hard drive to the cloud, or a very bad time to decide it wanted to download some patch from some service, right? And yet you have to broker all of that stuff simultaneously. It's fairly easy to start to engineer at a more structural level your machine to be able to even to start to know you are currently on Skype. That's probably the thing you want to be doing. We should deprioritize other activities and prioritize that one. Even that level of care is something very different than where we have been currently. And for me, being able to use this kind of language of relation and of a duty of care and even the kind of beginnings of the possibility of reciprocity were ones that have profound implications for architectural design and for software and hardware design, which are very different from the notion of objects that we point to and control. But I think you're right, a relationship economy is one that is going to absolutely and by necessity implicate other things. But that turns out to be true in human life too, right? Even if your friend is your friend with you, your friend is also in a whole series of relationships with other people, and there's no guarantee when you're having that cup of coffee, she's not thinking about her sick kid at home, right? So the notion that we ever have 100% of anyone's relational attention is probably as complicated as the fact that none of these things look after us now. I
0: think you can probably trust your friend people they want to be a little more discreet about.
2: I mean, like if you if I bitch about Amazon to the kinder one, well, that's a crazy time already. But well, I don't. If I can trust them to you know, I think you might have good friends, which is good for you. But I think, you know, I think I don't want to suggest here that this is perfect, right? And I don't want to suggest it's not happening outside of capitalism and global finance. But I think there is a potential here to start to say what does it mean to imagine shifting the burden of, of responsibility here and some of the burden of work. And I don't think it's going to be, you know, as straightforward as yes, indeed, every single object is backended by capitalism. It turns out not to be true on a global scale. There's lots of devices that have other relationships and other duties of care. But there are ways of starting to think, and there's legislative frameworks to imagine some of that's gonna come sooner than we think, of what it starts to mean if certain jurisdictions regulate that consumers, i.e. us, own all the data that is produced about us, not just what traffic's on our IP address, but all of the data that is produced about us, if we become the brokers of our own information and the brokers of our own data, it's going to generate a very different set of discursive and actual relationships with these objects, where you might want to be starting to think about them not as interactions, but as longer-term relationships, whether if not reciprocities, there are certainly responsibilities. There's two questions questions—one there. And one <coughs> question
3: just like, say, with the example of an automobile, uh, that the yeah, we'll automobiles now, as they were when it first started, are so quiet and they self- everything in with the car now is just amazing. Yet, yeah, there are still issues with speed limits, and so when you get to the point where someone's used to driving a 1980 car, and makes super annoying, but it's it like, say, 50k an hour, versus where you get into a brand new car and it's totally silent and you don't you're going 50k. There's a sort of relationship where people don't want to see that the family's not even aware.
2: Yeah. Well, in fact, cars become one of the most interesting places for the resurgence of certain kinds of anxieties, right? If you look at some of the discourse that appeared around autonomous driving vehicles in California, when they were first being tested in California and uh, Arizona, and indeed Utah, there was an incredible set of conversations that surfaced in the American media about the fact that you know autonomous cars would kill people, which was interesting, right? Because there have to be some other things that become the point that they would actively kill people, which seemed to be the kind of discourse, right? Um, but I think you're right. One of the challenges that exists in all of these spaces has to do with, in fact, in some ways where I started this talk, that we're talking about layers of technology, right? We're never going to get to the point where we effectively, you know, remove all the technology and start again. It doesn't happen. And there is this sense of, you know, people are going to come to technology in different kinds of ways and come to objects in different kinds of ways. And those obviously going to do different things. And as people work through what it means to have an object that knows you, what the different kind of constructs are. I mean, the first time I drove a Prius out at my mother's place, the kangaroos and mom's property didn't know what to do with it. Because they had a cognitive kind of moment of going, we can see a car, we can see the headlights, we hear nothing, so we will stand in the middle of the road until you get to us. Because we don't know how to make sense of the thing that has just happened. And it took a week before I could teach them that they needed to get out of the way when the headlights appeared, not the sound of the engine. And I think that kind of notion, right, of how things get trained and retrained is going to be part of the arc here, right? It's part of the sort of the story of what it means as technology increasingly is transformed. I think there are places we are moving certainly in some of these systems where technology is going to have, if not more autonomy, certainly more uh, capacity to know things and do things whether, you know, certainly, you know, more in, again, other environments than Australia, and depending on how you felt about the government regimes where those things were happening, cars are certainly part of stories of larger connected cities and about whether you can, in fact, then, control an entire fleet of cars, the way you control an entire fleet of phones becomes possible with smarter cars. It gets you to a singularity very quickly in that phenomenon. But there are pieces here about what it is going to mean to think through new generations of technology. And you're absolutely right. For people, every time you get a new thing, it's a whole new set of, in some ways, testing of the boundaries and testing of the parameters. And in the vehicle sense, and I suspect in some of the technical sense too, changing notions and perceptions about safety and the limits of our body are all going to be part of the conversation here, right? And cars have always been, you know, for the hundred years we've had them, a very interesting part of the conversation about the limits of our bodies and about what it means to move that fast, about how cars, you know, are part of a whole series of conversations about both liberation and enchantment and, well, in some ways, containment. All right, I want one more question, and it has to be from a woman. Because really, three blokes is like two too many. Thank you. Uh, such a nice question. Um, I wonder about that, right? I mean, I wonder where you push this, where that starts to go. Because I said I think one of the challenges about relationships is it's very hard for us to not immediately think about those as human to human, as opposed to saying there's a kind of an economy of relationships that isn't just about people to people, it's about people to objects, it's about people to country, it's people to ideas. <laughs> there's all kinds of kind of a relationship ecosystem that we operate in. And, you know what's of pop psychology about dysfunctional relationships, you know, we could get down this path of you know, phones are from Venus, laptops are from Mars, and it could just be really bad, right? But I think you know there's sort of something there, you're absolutely right about where the locus of responsibility lies and where the failure lies too. And I suspect we're already seeing movements in that. I mean, certainly in some of the work I did in South Australia four and five years ago, it was quite age specific whether you blamed the technology or blamed yourself. And there was certainly a series of people that I spoke to who thought they were the failure in the system, not the technology. And they would put the failure of the experience of the thing they were trying to get done on themselves, not onto the object. So I think it's not always quite that straightforward. And we've certainly seen in some of the work we've done recently that that sort of shifting of the locus of blame is moving around in really interesting ways, right? It's neither you nor the device, it's the service provider. A service provider, it's you know the software thing you've just downloaded, um, it's the virus. I mean, there's all these sort of places where it, it moves around, right? Of what becomes the point of failure, and I think as a result, there's this really interesting kind of constant cognitive process of establishing what's actually going on, much of which is riven through with magical thinking, right? Every time you have stood with a phone and said, it always works when I put it up here, you are simultaneously diagnosing the network and engaging in a form of thinking that is magical in a kind of ethnographic sense, right? You know, you hope by holding it up there, something will endure. But I think one of the challenges there, and it's a really interesting one, right? And it's a piece of other work I've been sort of noodling on recently, is about what it means to be moving into a world where the infrastructures that will be the kind of the foundational ones, are mostly invisible. You know, we know there is mobile signal because there are green bars on our phones of one description or other, we don't see it. You know, we know there is broadband because something goes in and out of our box and we can get to the internet. Right? It's not a physical thing you can see. I mean, it's actually quite hard to go find the NBN should you want to go looking for it. I mean, you know, in Wollonga they have nice manhole covers that say NBN Co, they're the only ones in Australia. You'd have a very hard time knowing it was happening were you somewhere else, right? And what's fascinating is how different that is from every other infrastructure that changed us in the last 150 years. So when electricity came along, we knew electricity was here because there were suddenly <coughs> lights on verandas and you could see lights from the inside of the house when it wouldn't have happened before. When radio came along, you knew it was happening because you heard it wafting in and out of buildings. When Australia went to a kind of you know, internal plumbing system and we stopped using the dunnies at the back of the block, We stopped having the council come and empty the night cans, and all the dunnies at the back of the block got turned into sheds. And people very quickly knew by the change in patterns of when doors slammed and when doors didn't that something quite different had happened. Snowy Mountain's hydro scheme was finished. People had rose gardens where there hadn't been rose gardens before. Television turned up, you could see it through the windows. All of those technologies got written on the landscape in really kind of powerful and profound ways, and we could see them happening. One of the things that's really interesting about mobile phones is we only see them happening through the devices. So you only know there's mobile coverage because you see a bazillion people walking around on their phones or incessantly texting. But the physicality of the infrastructure has disappeared. And I'm really sort of interested in thinking about what the consequences are of this move from visible to invisible infrastructures because it has interesting challenges. To your question about how you know where the locus of responsibility for failure lies. Right? If you can't see the network, it's really hard to know the network isn't working. So it's hard to know where the break is in the system, right? Anyway, that was a good question. I have to go think about that one more. But I must stop talking. Yes, yes, BB, so Louisa. Yay!